I'm going to ask uh, if you would turn the fans up on high again. Is that a good idea? And, uh, and if you'd turn my mic up just a little bit, and then, then we can overcome that, the noise of the fans. If you want to open your scriptures to Matthew, we're going to be looking at verses in chapter 26 towards the end. We're going to be looking at verses 45 through 56 this morning. The kiss of death is a haunting marble sculpture in Paleno Cemetery in Barcelona. The sculpture depicts death, as you can see here, in the form of a winged skeleton planting a kiss on the forehead of a young man. The statue is not only impressive because of its amazing artwork and the sculptor's ability to make it look so lifelike, but also for the tender way in which death is embracing that young man. Over the years, this sculpture and this kiss has evoked various reactions from horror to disgust to confusion fear and even anger perhaps those same adjectives could be used for the original kiss of death that we'll see in our text this morning Please look with me at Matthew 26, starting in verse 45. And there the Word of God says, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be filled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Father God, we ask you to send your spirit to help illuminate these words and help to propel them into our hearts. 
so that we may be changed by your word. Your, your word in Isaiah says that your word will go out and it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. And we just rely on that this morning. Change it. Change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Jesus has just finished struggling all night in prayer with, over the cup that has been set before him, that goblet that we talked about last week that is full of God's wrath that he was going to the cross to drink on our behalf. And as he finishes praying for the third time, an armed mob arrives at Gethsemane to arrest him. And there are three main players in this narrative. And what I'd like to do is look at each of the, these, these people, these players in this narrative, and see what we can learn from each of them. And the first one that I want us to look at is the betrayer. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. don't know if you know this or not, but in our English language... Shakespeare has added over 100 to 150 idioms that we say. We don't even know that we're saying it. And he has added them into our language, like this person has a heart of gold, or that person is in a pickle, or you wear your heart out on a sleeve. This is all come directly from, from Shakespeare into our vernacular. But the Bible attributes almost double what Shakespeare attributes to our language. And the kiss of death is one of them. And it originates right here in our text today. It originates when Jesus kisses Jesus and identifies him, thus sending into motion his arrest, his trial, and eventually his death. Judas gives Jesus the kiss of death. Throughout the centuries, probably... Millions of people, probably millions of people, have struggled with one question in regard to Judas. And that is, why did he do it? Why did, why did Judas betray Jesus? Some have said it was out of greed. After all, he got those 30 pieces of silver. A.W. Tozer wrote, Jesus Iscariot was not a greatly wicked person, just a common money lover. And like most money lovers, he did not understand Christ. So perhaps it was greed. Or perhaps it was anger. After all, many of the disciples uh, joined Jesus in following him because they thought he was the Messiah. But in their mind, they thought he was the political Messiah, the one who's going to throw the Romans out. And Judas found out as he was going to the cross that that wasn't going to be true. Or perhaps it was resentment. Judas did this out of resentment. I remember when, when I was let go uh, 30 years ago from top managing Taco Bell restaurants, they, they actually fired me. And, and I spent two years managing restaurants. And, and if you know anything about the restaurant industry, it's all-consuming. It consumes your life. So I spent two years consumed in this, and they just let me go. And I remember feeling a great resentment over the loss of those two years. I poured my life into Taco Bell, and this is what they did. I don't know, perhaps Judas was feeling that way after giving three years of his life, and now he knows he's just going to be this person that is going to hang on a tree. 
But I don't think scripture is clear on the why of Judas's betrayal. But I think the Bible is clear that Judas was fulfilling prophecy. Judas was fulfilling prophecy. John, in his account of this, uh, the mob coming to Gethsemane, quotes the, uh, uh, Psalm 41.9 as, as Judas being the one to dip the bread in the bowl with him. The one who ate, Psalm 41.9 says, has lifted his heel against me. Judas was fulfilling these and other scriptures. But Judas also has a warning. Judas also holds a warning for us. I'd like us to notice, if you look at verse 47, how Judas is described. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve. And then if you drop down to the very next, next verse, look at how God's word describes him. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. One of the twelve and a betrayer. And I think in those two verses, in those descriptions of Judas, lies our warning. Judas was one of the twelve. One of the inner circle that Jesus lived with. He thought Jesus was the Christ. He thought Jesus was the, the, the Messiah. Yet I don't think anyone down throughout the ages would argue that Judas now is in hell. I don't think anybody would argue that. Yet he was one of the twelve. How can he believe who Jesus is yet be in hell? Because as James Boyce writes, Judas is a warning to all adherents to external religion. It is possible to be attached to Jesus but not belong to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Judas looked good on the outside. J.C. Ryle wrote about him. He was an eyewitness to the miracles. He was a hearer of all his sermons. He was a fellow laborer. He was a professor of the faith. Yet, as this text makes clear, Judas's faith was not genuine. Now, there are two ways you can approach this. You can approach this in one sense as, well, Judas lost his salvation. He was saved, but at some point along the way, he lost his salvation. But I think that position, if you're a close or a, a reader of Scripture at all, is, is quite untenable. Let me just give you a few examples. In Hebrews 7.25, God's Word says, Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. In John 10, John sculpts a wonderful word picture of the assurance of salvation. Jesus is talking and he says, My Father who has given them, you and me, to to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of his hand. I and the Father are one. You're secure. You can't jump out. And then, of course, there's that wonderful promise in Philippians 1, 6. 
he who began a good work in you, what? Will take it to completion. D.L. Moody wrote, I believe many Christian people today are deceived by Satan now at this point, that they have not got the assurance of salvation just because they are not willing to take God at his word. Brothers and sisters, once you are saved, you are saved. You are secure. That's what the Bible teaches. However, the Bible does teach another thing, and that is, I think, what is, can be applicable to Judas. And that is, G- Judas might never have been saved in the first place. And that is the flare. That is the warning. As Matthew 25's parable of the sheeps and the goats, you remember that? As that parable mercifully points out, it is possible to go to church your whole life. It is possible to live a morally upright life. Externally look like a Christian and not really know Jesus. Judas serves as a warning flare. A warning flare that 2 Peter 1.10 says... Be diligent. He's talking to us. Be diligent then to make your calling and election sure. Make sure, Peter is saying, that you're not just going through the paces. That your motivation to come here today is to glorify God and God alone and not to check some box, some holy box that you said, I did it this week. Your faith is not for show. Your faith is not for others. My mother used to say, you are who you are when you're sitting on the toilet. (laughs) We're not doing this for show. This is for real. John MacArthur writes, no one can be a Christian and continue living the way he did before he knew Christ. Making a decision years ago, going to an inquiry room, walking an aisle, or reading a tract on how to accept Christ is not a biblical criteria for salvation. The issue is what your life looks like right now. He goes on and says, if sin and unrighteousness characterize your life, there's a possibility that you're a disobedient Christian. But there's also a possibility you're not a Christian at all. So, what does Scripture do? Scripture mercifully says, over and over and over again, what 2 Corinthians 13 says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. That is Scripture. So, have you ever had a conversation that started something like this? Brother, sister, I'd like you, I'd like to get together with you. And I'd like you to, to think and pray and then let's get together and tell me what fruit of repentance you see in my life. Have you ever had a conversation like that? Anything like that? Or are you just assuming 
Second Peter 1 tells us to make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. There's some fruit of repentance right there. Do you work hard towards these things? Peter says be diligent. Do you petition the Holy Spirit to bear this fruit in your life? Because sanctification is a cooperative effort. Do you want the Spirit to create inside you a hatred of sin? Romans 7. Do you want the Spirit to create in you a repentant heart? 1 John 1. Do you want the Spirit to create in you a deep desire to obey Christ's teachings? John 1, 2. Do you petition the Holy Spirit to give you a deep love for your local church? 1 John 2, 9 says, Whoever says he's in light and hates his brother is still in darkness. A fruit of a regenerate believer is all these things, including loving your brother and sister. These are all marks. Brothers and sisters, it's not meant to discourage you or a scare tactic. That's not what I'm doing here. It is meant as Scripture intends it, as a warning flare, as a prophylactic against our fleshly tendency to dupe ourselves into thinking the exterior is what matters. It's to keep you and me from following Jesus for years, just like Judas did, and never knowing Jesus. And that's scary. And sometimes scripture is scary. As your pastor, I want to rush in right now and rescue you. But the great thing about scripture is I don't have to. Because scripture gives us the next player in the narrative. And that is Peter, the fighter. Look at verses 50 through 52. Jesus said to him, that is Judas, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cutting off his ear. Now we know from from the Gospel of John that the person who who was so impetuous and drew his sword and who knows what he was going to do against a mob of 100 or 200 with one sword, right? But he drew his sword when they saw him, them lay hands on him to arrest him and, and went to, I think, kill Malchus. And, and he missed. And he took off his ear. Peter here is the foil for Judas. Peter is the foil here for Judas. Here we have Judas betraying with a kiss and here we have Peter protecting with the sword. Here we have Judas standing with the world and we have Peter standing and defending Christ. We have Judas who shows worldly sorrow, right? 2 Corinthians 7. He shows worldly sorrow later on in in the next chapter by killing himself, hanging himself. 
But we have Peter later on showing godly sorrow, returning to Jesus in confession and repentance and being restored. Judas looks good on the outside. But Peter, with all his fumbling, with all his foibles, has true faith. Eugene Peterson writes, Among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success is Judas, and the one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was successful in ways that most impress us. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the apostolic band. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. And Peter was a failure in ways we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he ran away, a blustering coward, in the most critical situations of his life with Jesus on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision and the transfiguration. He said the most embarrassing and inappropriate things. Yet, Judas pictures false faith and Peter pictures true faith. And what we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that true faith doesn't look clean. True faith looks kind of messy. That's what we have to understand. So if you were starting to question your faith after I preached on Judas a moment ago, Peter is the relief valve. Peter is put in Scripture to show us that saving faith is not neat. Saving faith is not linear. Saving faith isn't consistent. Boy, we wish it was. But it's not. Saving faith isn't perfect on the outside. True faith kind of looks bad, like a bad year at the stock market. Up, down, volatility here. Faithfulness, unfaithfulness. Up, down. Obedient, then sinning. Like Peter, willing to die for Christ one moment and then denying him three, three hours later. That's what true faith looks like. Brennan Manning, in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he writes this, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in Revelation 7-9 in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, I shall see the prostitute of the Kit Kat Ranch at Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion, who is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with the grueling alternatives. The insecure clergyman addicted to being liked, who never challenged his people from the pulpit. The businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions. But how, we ask? Then the voice says, they have all washed their robes and have been made, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Manning continues and says, there they are. There we are. The multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life, 
bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know why Judas is in hell and Peter's in heaven? It wasn't because Peter knew more scripture. It wasn't because Peter lived this amazing moral life. It was because Judas left Christ in the end. And Peter returned. Judas turned and ran. And Peter knew nowhere else to go but back to Christ. It was because Peter clung to Christ through all the ups and downs, defeats, trials, and tribulations. And Judas didn't. Listen, all of our lives are terribly messy. Yes, we try and hide it. We do. We want to look like Judas. That's what our flesh tells us, and it's wrong. Our lives are messy, and it's not because we sin less that we remain saved. That's not it. It's because we return to Christ every time we fall. We run to Christ. The faithful walk is a messy, messy walk, like Peter. And that's why we need the last person in our narrative. The fulfiller, Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness so that we do not have to. Jesus fulfilled suffering for sin so that we do not have to. Jesus fulfilled being punished for sin so that we don't have to. Jesus fulfilled dying and paying the penalty for our sin so that we don't have to. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That's the good, good news. Jesus did it so we don't have to. We have to understand that Jesus wasn't just playing a role in a play He didn't just robotically fulfill scripture. He did it willingly. Twice our text makes the point of saying, I hope you picked up on it, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Remember once in verse 54, when Peter tried to defend Jesus, but from being arrested, and then in verse 56, speaking to the mob, holding the the clubs and swords come to get him. He was was telling, in, in, in basic fact, the people that believed in him and the people that didn't. They said, I'm fulfilling scripture. Jesus is telling us at the beginning of his Via Della Rosa, no need to protect me. No need to defend me. I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do this for you. One commentator wrote, so that scripture would be fulfilled has an intonation of approval and almost a celebration of what is written in the scripture. As if Jesus is saying, I can change it, but I shall not. Because it's not my will to do so. Rather, my will 
is to fulfill it. My will is to fulfill it. That was his will. That's what we struggled through in their last text last week, right? That was his struggle in his full humanity. I don't want to do this. I don't want to fulfill this. But he struggled through it. And it's his will to go to the cross for you and me. That's the emphasis we have in verses 52 through 54 when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear defending Jesus. He rebukes him by saying what? Hey, hey, don't you think that, that I can defend myself? I, I can call 72,000 angels. That's what sick legions are. 72,000 angels to defend me. I'm not helpless here. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is, is in John's account of this when, when they come and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. You know, that great, wonderful uh, name of God. Ego me. And do you remember what happens? He, he, he says that he's God. And they, do you remember, fall to the ground. They fall back. It's like there's this little blip of power that goes out and they just fall to the ground. Jesus is not helpless here. He's not being coerced. He's not being dragged and he's certainly not being imprisoned to do this. He's willingly doing this. I'm going to lay my life down willingly for you. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake Jesus did not have to go to the cross, but he willingly went out of love for you. Out of love for you. That's why he went. The preeminent theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, was invited to deliver a series of lectures at a large seminary. While he was there, a group of ministers and theologians and dignitaries took turns, had an opportunity to sit with Karl Barth and and talk with him. And one of them asked him, what, Carl, what's the most profound thought that you know? You know what he said? This great theologian of the 20th century. He looked at the man he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It boils down to that, doesn't it? It's just that. He went willingly because he loves you. You, specifically. Oswald Chambers penned, The cross is not the cross of a man, but the exhibition of the heart of God. At the back of the wall of the world stands God with his arms outstretched, and every man driven there is driven into the arms of God. The cross of Jesus is the supreme evidence of the love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it, it is so incisive in our hearts and minds. How it guides us. How it challenges and how it encourages us. And Lord, we have just been greatly encouraged by your word. And how much you love us. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Willingly died for me. In Jesus' name.
Amen.